Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. So, Father, could you open us in prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Buddhism, a Catholic perspective. There are over 520 million followers of different branches of Buddhism. The vast majority of these live in East Asia. About half of all Buddhists are in China. The second largest group outside of East Asia are in the United States. Now, seven countries have Buddhist minorities. Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, now Myanmar, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Laos, and Mongolia. But a question may arise, namely, what is Buddhism? And where do we go with it? Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy, a way of life? Does Buddhism require any kind of central belief or practice? Well, according to one way of understanding it, Buddhism can be seen as uh, a raft that takes us across a river. This raft is, as it were, a, a means, a technique. And what it does is it draws us away from this life toward nirvana. Literally, nirvana means blowing out as when a person sighs or becoming extinguished as when a flame is blown out or a fire burns out. The letting go, moving over the river towards the sunset of this universe. So Buddhism then uh, should be understood primarily as a vehicle. But what does that mean? Well, in order to grasp this, um, I think we can start, the way many Buddhists start, with the life of the person now called the Buddha, Gautama Siddhartha. Scholars generally agree that Gautama Siddhartha was born in what would now be Nepal. He taught in what was India, uh, now, now India, and Buddhism, interestingly enough, however, is a minority faith in both countries. Only about 1% of Indians and 10% of Nepalese identify as Buddhist. The vast majority in both are Hindu. 
Now, when we approach the life of uh, this Gautama Siddhartha, we have to recognize that many of the texts that we have come from centuries after his life. Unlike Christianity, which has four Gospels, which purport to be absolutely historical and were written very soon after the ascension of Christ, Buddhism has no official canon. Because of a difference of view of history and of text and even of certainty itself, the sources of Buddha's life begin from about two centuries after his death until a long time later. So the date is even disputed about the time of Socrates, more or less, five centuries before Jesus. Now, there's an epic poem, for instance, that uh, tries to unite all the different elements of the Buddha's life. It was written six centuries after his death. Given that Buddhism is founded on the personality and words of its founder, it's quite disconcerting that there's little corroborating evidence for many of the details of the life of Gautama Siddhartha. There are many places that claim to be pilgrimage sites of places where he taught, where his disciples went. And yet what's clear is that there's a, a reciprocal relationship between texts that claim that Buddha was there and the rise of the pilgrimage site. In other words, as the story of Buddha spreads, people start to claim for their own <laughs> his presence in their typical country. And so historians generally agree uh, what I'm about to share should be understood rather allegorically, symbolically, and not as strict history. So with that, let's start with the life of Gautama Siddhartha. Some lives begin not with his parents or his birth, but with another story about an ascetic who encountered a former Buddha. And often this is because what the story wants to do is frame for the listener the fact that there are many Buddhas. And in fact, that anyone, any being, has known countless previous lives as a human being, as an animal, or even as an angel, a ghost, or a demon. Attracted by the possibility of becoming a Buddha, this ascetic wanted to raise him up. And so he went through multiple series of perfections and eventually was reborn as Gautama. According to the traditions, Gautama was raised in a wealthy family. He was called a prince. And he enjoyed many delights, opulent life. His father shielded him from exposure to the ills of the world, including old age, sickness, and death. And he enjoyed palaces, one for the summer, one for the winter, and one for the monsoon season. It's said in one account that he had 40,000 female attendants, a whole football stadium full of attendants. I, I, I don't know what they were doing, but apparently they were at his beck and call. At the age of 16, he married and he had a child. Now, one day, the prince hears about a delightful forest and he decides to go on a ride. He leaves his palace and he wants to experience something new. His father, knowing of his boy's tenderness, wanted to preserve him from enduring anything other than pleasure. And so he commanded a great train of people to follow him, to sweep away all dirt and trash and keep at a distance any decrepit and deformed people. However, the father failed. And so Gautama came and saw what is now known as the four sites. We'll see the next slide here. In this classic image, you see the four sites, and uh, I've numbered them helpfully for you. The first thing he saw was an old man 
And he asked some of his attendants, well, what's that? And they said, well, that's an old man. All people must grow old like him. He, he saw another person, a sick person. Well, what's that? They said, well, it's someone who is ill. No one can fully escape sickness and disease in this life. And then he saw the corpse of a dead man being eaten by a raven. Number three, what's that? Well, it was a living man and now he's dead. All people must die like him, said the attendant. Finally, some days later, the prince saw an ascetic, which is included in this uh, classic painting within the same series. And this ascetic showed the prince the way to liberation from the sufferings of this world, which is to separate himself from all things, to sit under a tree and to meditate. So over the, the next six years, Gautama Siddhartha studied meditation. He learned to achieve these deep states of blissful concentration. But he quickly matched the attainments of his teachers and concluded that despite their achievements, they would be reborn after death. He joined some ascetics and they practiced extreme forms of mortification. We can see the next slide here. The prince, they say, became so adept that he reduced his daily meal to one pea. Maybe it was a tasty pea. Uh, Buddhist art often represents him seated like this in a meditative posture in an, an emaciated form, sunken eyes and protruding ribs. He concluded, however, that mortification of the flesh was not the path to liberation, and so he ceased to do this. Eventually, as he climbed these ladders of perfection, his companions, they were, they were convinced of the efficacy of asceticism, and they left him. So without companions or teacher, he vowed that he would sit under a tree and not rise until he had found the state beyond birth and death. Six years after he left his palace, he meditated, meditated until dawn, until finally the goddess of desire, well, she attacked him with wind and rains, rocks, weapons, hot coals and burning ashes, sand and mud, and demons came as well. And here we can see the next slide. Here's a classic silk painting from the 10th century. And here this is Siddhartha now becoming the Buddha. And you can see the endless eons reflected in his halo and then the attacks of the demons to the side of him. The goddess of desire sent him lust, thirst, and discontent to try to tempt him, but he remained impassive. Here we can see a detail of this silk painting. There we go. There's, there's, um, these are the sort of fellows who are attacking him. What's interesting is that uh, this, so far, this narrative actually has some parallels in the life of St. Anthony of the Desert. And I've provided a slide of that just to notice that pictorially, there's some interesting parallels. Of course, Michelangelo, this is an early painting of his, um, probably knew nothing of either the story or of the painting to which we're referring. But what it shows is that often within the spiritual narratives, we find someone who has to go through a great amount of suffering and torture offering at the hands of the demons before he reaches a spiritual state. Of course, the difference between the two is great. It's said in one of the lives of uh, the Buddha that after he was fully awoken, after he achieved enlightenment, 
that a serpent wrapped itself around his body seven times and with its great hood overshadowed his head and protected him from the elements. And then the Buddha declared the following. Disinterest in the world is happiness for him who has surmounted these desires. To be rid of the conceit I am, that is the greatest happiness of all. And so with the help of this serpent god, the Naga, half human, half cobra, he was able then to be freed from the incursions of the world. Many people came to hear the Buddha speak and eventually gained devoted followers who formed what is called a Sangha, that is a kind of a religious community. In spite of all of his fame and offerings of kingdoms and treasures, the Buddha and his followers remained faithful to the simple life. They wandered around the countryside, minimal possessions, and they would often beg for food and medicine. Now, what's interesting is that an exception to this was during the monsoon season, when great floods still happen today in India, and these Buddhist monks were allowed to take a permanent shelter for uh, these this period of time, and they would go find caves, and eventually they would build themselves monasteries. And that actually became the beginning of Buddhist monasticism for both monks and then later nuns. They were, in, they were among the trees, they were in caves, and then more and more they built these fine buildings with really astonishingly beautiful architecture, as we'll see later on. So what's interesting also is that uh, writing at that time was virtually unknown. And so the sayings of Buddha, if they were preserved, had to be preserved through memorization. And so many of his followers would have these chants where they would repeat these uh, purported phrases of his until uh, many centuries later, they were written down. And there's one language called Pali, which is only dedicated to Buddhist things. Although there are thousands of pages of writings in this language, it's exclusively of Buddhist material. Now, when we're thinking about how to understand this sort of parable of the life of the Buddha, um, and the Buddha means the enlightened one, I think it's helpful, first of all, to compare what Buddhism is with Stoicism. And so uh, I've created just a little chart to kind of compare the two. So, but before we get to the chart, I just want to say this, that basically oh, the, the initial way of understanding what Buddhism is, is as a solution to the problem of suffering, right? So the Buddha sees the suffering and what does he do? He, he has this interior move and this movement of meditation eventually makes him think that there's a kind of illusory existence of all things. Now, Stoicism in this Greco-Roman philosophy also responded to the problem of suffering with a very similar way, but we'll notice some similarities and some differences just to give us an idea. So let's look at the chart. So on the one hand, we can see that uh, what's unique to Buddhism is it's founded in India, it spreads throughout Asia, it has a particular founder. Well, Stoicism, it's Greco-Roman, it doesn't so much have a founder, but we can find the first Stoic and his name is Zeno of Sitium. Buddhism, continuous growth. It has fission throughout the millennium. There are multiple branches, many writings, many temples, many different prayers, statues, architecture. Stoicism really never had that influence over the West 
the way that Buddhism had over the East. There were no temples of Stoicism. There were some schools, but they more or less dried up when Christianity came around. So Stoicism really only lasted from about 400 BC until 200 AD. And they were largely trying to respond to the question, what is happiness? The Epicureans uh, of ancient times, following Epicurus, the philosopher, they said that a happy life is that which is most pleasant. But the response of the Stoics was to point out that we can have all sorts of pleasantries and still be unhappy. So the English phrase, having a Stoic calm, or he was a Stoic character, that, that kind of gives us the idea of what they did, namely to try to calm the passions with their intellect and to resist the urges of the passion to do something that was disordered. The Stoics insisted that they followed nature. So it, it's, it's interesting then that the uh, Buddhism and Stoicism then, they, they influence the previously existing religions. So Stoicism uh, influenced both the sort of Roman pantheon, but then it goes to influence Christianity. Both Buddhism and Stoicism include a philosophy and a method for responding to suffering, which is intellectual control of our lower powers. But one of the main differences is that the Stoics' cosmology basically was almost non-existent, and it had very little influence on Christianity. However, the Stoic idea of controlling the passions, that was incorporated into the Desert Fathers, and, um, and it remained this, this ongoing influence in Catholic spirituality. Uh, even Renaissance authors, when they revived interest in classical Roman thought, they, they absorbed Stoicism once again, and they revived interest in the classic Stoic authors, especially Seneca. So what do we find then about one of the major differences between Stoicism and Buddhism? Well, I'm going to say the cosmological or ontological claims are quite distinct. And what I mean by cosmological is the claims about the nature of the universe, and then ontological, the claims about the nature of being. And this is manifested in what are called the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. Four Noble Truths. And uh, I'll list them now, and then I'll walk through uh, each one in rather good detail. So the four truths about the world is we are encountered, we are is surrounded by suffering, dukkha. And we also have uh, one of the major sources of suffering is desire or attachment. Finally, we have to talk about the cessation of suffering, which is going to be nirvana. And then how do we how do we get to that place of nirvana? Well, it's the way of doing so, the path of Buddhism. So let's just look at those one by one. The first so-called noble truth, suffering. Now, in, in classic Buddhist thought, there's three kinds of suffering. There's ordinary suffering, which can be physical, like when you stub your toe, <laughs> you get a bee sting, and um, we all know that. They also talk about this ordinary suffering. It's like mental pain. For instance, when you just feel unhappy, we might talk about, say, uh, even emotional, say, depression or something like that. That's ordinary. The second kind, however, is, is a little more um, uh, precise. It says there's suffering because of change. Now, this is really interesting, and I, and I think this is insightful. So 
For instance, uh, I'll just give you an example. Well, let's suppose that you have uh, you have a friend who you know is um, say in Cincinnati, and you enjoy their company. You have coffee, you talk, but things are transient. The world is is never going to remain the same, as far as we can tell. And so, even if that person doesn't have any major flaws, the situation might change. One of you has to move away, or you have to go to work, or frankly, you just have to sleep. And so the enjoyment of their company fades and perhaps is lost. Now, in the Buddhist idea, if you don't have attachment to that person, you'll be free. Then you won't suffer. Okay, now that's just the second kind of suffering. Suffering simply because things are impermanent, right? You have the chocolate cake and it's there. You eat it. As soon as you eat it, it disappears. What a temporary source of satisfaction. And you can't continually be eating chocolate cake even if you wanted to. Your body won't allow it. Now, the third kind of suffering, this is, I would say, more specific to Buddhist claims about the nature of the universe. And this is suffering because your existence is conditioned. Suffering because your existence is conditioned. In other words, you suffer because you are finite, you're dependent, you are not being itself. Think about this. Your very existence is ephemeral. Everything, apparently, according to the Buddhist way of seeing things, is ephemeral. According to the Buddhist doctrine, there is no ultimate reality. The world that, that we see it is passing away. And everything, uh, I like to think of it within the Buddhist way of thinking, is if you can imagine a chain a link of um, a, a linked chain that is extremely long. Now imagine I, I, I throw the chain down and you can see the ripple, the wave move through the chain, right? Okay, so you can imagine this, this really long chain and as, and as it's being shaken, the wave moves through the chain and then the wave passes away. Okay, so, so that is for them what existence is. It's simply the movement of a series of connected events. And there's no reality to any of them. It's simply the movement of those connections over time. And so the, one of the problems that you face is, is that you realize that you're a finite, you're dependent. And in fact, you are just part of that wave of conditioned things. And so this is the Buddhist doctrine of the no self. According to the earliest Buddhist doctrine, the self within the Hindu idea, the Atman, this sort of connection, this, this present being, whether it's a soul or not, is, is contested. But Buddhism says there is no self in that way. So, so, there, so if Hinduism denies a soul, Buddhism denies even this sort of existing thing that continues after death. This self is said to be an illusion generated by five interlinked factors. They're called aggregates. But, but again, we can think of them as those links on a chain that are simply moving through time, and it's an endless cycle of time unless you escape. So the other, the other doctrine that's related to um, this notion of suffering is the doctrine of connectedness. So given that there are no persons, only aggregates, Buddhism holds a strong doctrine of the interconnectedness of things, such that the human being is just part of a chain of conditioned being that arises as a wave and then passes away. 
So this idea then of impermanence leaves no room for a soul, for a permanent entity. And therefore, in a way, it's it's slightly incorrect to think of reincarnation as if you have a soul and then the same soul that is now within your body gets moved into a cricket or is moved into a cow. That's That's not correct because there was no soul in the first place. Well, let's move to the second so-called noble truth. Here, this is the idea of desire or craving or attachment. Okay, so let's think about this once again. First, there's normal greed. We're all familiar with that, right? The desire for some external object, such as gold. Um, then there's also emotional greed. And we can understand this as getting one's way. You know, it's like you have this sort of possessiveness. And in fact, John of the Cross talks about a kind of spiritual greed. Um, for me, a good example of that is um, Bridezilla. She roars and goes on a rampage if she doesn't get what she wants, just the way she wanted it. We can see that as a kind of emotional greed, right? It's not so much to have the flowers, but to have them arranged in her way. Now, in a higher way, uh, spiritual greed, or lower, is the, is the desire for some spiritual experience, a feeling of high or some interior state, some transcendent connectedness with higher being. And once again, St. John of the Cross talks about the problems that people have when they seek out these divine consolations, this spiritual possessiveness. He says, we have to let that go. Thus far, Christianity might agree with this um, uh, Buddhist recognition of the problem of desire. But once again, Buddhism goes deeper than this, or we might say it takes the, the idea of detachment to an even uh, deeper form which is more problematic because it says not only should you be detached from like those, you know, disordered desires for created goods, you should even be detached from the desire to seem as if you are an individual. See, according to the Buddhist idea, because everything is an illusion or just a movement within the chain of being, having a self living in a permanent world is itself part of this craving. And this craving is this deep sense of wanting to be an I, a person, a potential beneficiary of these objects. And so ultimately, part of the, the Buddhist notion is to get rid of this sense of a permanent, unchanging self and to rid yourself of any attachment, even to your own particular essence. Yeah. The third noble truth is nirvana, cessation of suffering. So we've already seen within the, the Hindu world that the idea of karma is this mechanism which brings about rebirth, samsara. This also exists within Buddhism. But the teaching of no self says that this present state of affairs is once again simply an effect from this permanent previ previous chain of other causes. So in order to be released from the sense of suffering because you think that you exist when you don't, what you need to do then is to rise above that sense. And that is what enlightenment is. You see, within, within the Buddhist notion, enlightenment is to see things the way they are. But what that really means is to see that they are not. Absolute truth, according to Buddhism, is that there is nothing absolute in the world, that everything is relative conditioned, impermanent, that there is no unchanging, everlasting, or absolute substance, such as the self, or even God. 
So nirvana then doesn't necessarily mean the annihilation of the self, as I said, because the, pre the presupposition is that there's a self that could be annihilated. No, it, there's no self whatsoever. So sometimes people ask things like, well, what is there after nirvana? And, and, and that's, that's not the correct way of understanding it from the Buddhist perspective. There's nothing after nirvana. Nirvana is that, as it, as it were, recognition of the impermanence of existence. So it's not like nirvana is a state like heaven. Nirvana is not like the beatific vision where you, as you're within your soul, are now encountering the living God. Rather, nirvana is this blowing out of the candle. The fact that the wave of the great chain of being moves on never to rise again. So then how do people achieve nirvana? Well, that's the fourth noble truth, namely the path or the way of Buddhism. And according to this fourth noble truth, there are, um, we can call it an eightfold path of Buddhism. And so we'll look at that chart now. So the eightfold path we can see here, there are basically three main uh, moments or three main dimensions of that eightfold path. And these dimensions are wisdom, conduct, and meditation. Now, it's, it's, it's important to note, first of all, that many of these appear to be matters of the natural law that people within all cultures can recognize. Um, so, for instance, right intention, number two, includes things like friendliness, compassion. Number three, right speech, includes refraining from lying, refraining from hurtful speech or idle chatter. Right action, number four, includes not stealing and refraining from sexual misconduct. However, it's also important to note that this Eightfold Path has very specific Buddhist notions within it. So although those, you know, those phrases, right effort, right mindfulness, etc., might be interpreted in another way, and some Catholics have tried to do so, the Buddhist notion is important to recognize because they're the ones who developed this Eightfold Path. So implicit in all of them is this general faith in the Buddha. And the faith is not as in the Catholic faith where we have a creed and there's specific things you have to know. Rather, faith in the Buddha is understood, understood as an effective state. In other words, that you have this kind of confidence in the person of the Buddha and his teachings, a confidence that there is a path leading to nirvana so you can escape the suffering become Buddha yourself, and so you become another wave within that great chain. Also think about this, the, the idea of uh, right intention within the Buddhist doctrine includes being without desire. You see how it's similar. So Stoicism would say that your lower desires, your passions, they get you into trouble. And what you need to do is to control those passions. Some Stoics will say you squelch them and you just have to think your way through it. So cognitive behavioral therapy has a lot in common with um, Stoicism. But, but again, Buddhism goes further than Stoicism and says, not only should your de desires be controlled, if you, want to get, if you want to control your desires, the best way is to not have desire. You see, so you might think of Buddhism as like Stoicism taken to the infinite degree. <laughs> Let's think about this, right action within the Eightfold Path? Well, this includes the idea of refraining from harming living beings. 
some Buddhists say that this should include vegetarianism because they believe that to kill an animal is to harm a living being, so that's not right action. Whereas, you know, say Catholics, we've always come from the, the Jewish tradition recognizing that God allows us to eat animals. And in fact, he commanded sacrifices. Um, another example, mindfulness. I'll, I'll, I'll pause here on the concept of mindfulness because this is, I think, um, something that has been spread to the West perhaps more than any other Buddhist concept. And uh, probably you're familiar with it or you've heard about it. Maybe you've even picked up a book or you've been recommended perhaps by a psychologist to practice mindfulness. So mindfulness is um, it's one of the steps on um, the Eightfold Path. It's number seven. And um, I'll just briefly describe uh, what it is and then how Catholics might understand it. And um, you know, we can come back to this in the question and answer period as well if um, there are further further uh, issues. So um, within the Buddhist concept, mindfulness is something that means you are aware of things that are passing by, both within your mind and outside of it, and you allow them to pass through without judging them. Although mindfulness is, in the Buddhist concept, best practiced within um, a calm state, within a temple, perhaps in front of a, a picture of the Buddha, or um, in Zen Buddhism, actually mindfulness in, within a monastery, sometimes they face the wall. How best to be undistracted than to see nothing. But nevertheless, mindfulness can also be practiced throughout the day. So it's not restricted to formal meditation sessions within the Buddhist notion. Now, th there's a lot of debate among Buddhists and uh, Buddhist commentators as to whether or not mindfulness means clearing your mind of all things or having an empty mind. Certainly within the Zen Buddhist tradition, that's encouraged. And in fact, there are books written with titles such as Zen Mind, Empty Mind. Okay, so the idea is that it, you should be clear of all clutter and therefore not have anything to think about. Um, other Buddhists will argue that's not the case. And in fact, there are a number of Buddhist texts that talk about meditation on different elements of the world, meditation on your body, meditation even on spiritual things. So, so there's, there's a bit of debate as to what um, the, the object of meditation is and whether there is an object or not. Um, for Catholics who have tried to adopt mindfulness, um, first I'll notice that um, you know, back in the 1970s when Buddhism was really hip and cool and um, Catholics were you know, trying to adopt this, um, they, they called it centering prayer. <laughs> and um, centering prayer, you know, if you ever went to um, some kind of you know, religious retreat or you know, monastery with uh, people who weren't wearing their habits or whatnot, um, they would talk about centering yourself, trying to find your spiritual center. And sometimes they would talk about Christ as your spiritual center. But, um, but eventually that kind of wore away and either the people like abandoned Catholicism, which happened in large numbers, people who did centering prayer, or they actually abandoned centering prayer. Um, it just, the two didn't really seem to match up. Um, now there's a question of mindfulness. Um, one of the people who have taught this is, um, this former Franciscan, his name is Greg uh, Gregory Bataro, Dr. Gregory has a uh, doctorate in psychology. Um, he wrote this book called The Mindful Catholic, Finding God One Moment at a Time. And, um, and, and he writes 
very openly that um, he he tried to synthesize mindfulness as taught by um, a Jewish Buddhist, John Kabat-Zinn, um, who Zinn himself tried to adapt uh, Buddhist meditation to Western understanding. So Kabat-Zinn actually uh, changed the language. He tried to change some of the metaphors, make it more amenable. Kabat-Zinn actually had a vision in which he was told by some spirit guide that he was to be the one to spread mindfulness in the United States. Well, anyway, Greg Bataro believes that you can synthesize that with Catholicism. And so he wrote this book and he's created what he calls a stress reduction protocol. And, um, and Bataro actually has like an online guide and uh, he has a practice in which he encourages this. And um, then there's also the book. Okay, so, so uh, according to Bataro, this notion of mindfulness um, is just a technique. He says it's not a prayer. And really what it is, is trying to reduce your anxiety, trying to reduce the random thoughts that go through your head so you can focus on God. And he attempts to synthesize this with things like Brother Lawrence's The Practice of the Presence of God or The Abandonment to Divine Providence. Um, critics of Bataro say that the practice in itself, although it doesn't like have Buddhist teachings, Bataro is like really clear about the difference, especially in Appendix 1 of his book. Um, nevertheless, they say the practice itself can be problematic and actually lead to um, the erosion of the faith, because if everything you perceive is received without judgment, non-judgmentally, then you're actually hijacking the natural rational factor in which, well, we don't accept everything without judgment. Like some things are good and some things are bad. Should I be passive or sort of um, un unconcerned with some of the events that are happening in the world or my life? So that's that's one of the criticisms. Um, there are also other criticisms. Um, a woman, Susan Brinkman, she wrote a book called The Catholic Guide to Mindfulness, 2017. And, um, and, and she actually has a much stronger critique of of Bataro's attempt, and she argues that it's really not possible at all. My position, um, well, I, I'm not sure actually that mindfulness is, is entirely compatible, but certainly to be calm, to breathe, to um, clear a mind of chatter is not a problem. So I'll come back to this at the end when I discuss uh, potential compatibility or incompatibility of Buddhism with uh, Christianity. But just note that within the Buddhist realm, it's just step number seven on your way to nirvana. And this is going to help us to see then some of the differences between, say, Buddhism and Hinduism. So here we'll come to another chart. So uh, within Buddhism, some unique things, some branches are atheistic, whereas, of course, we've seen with Hinduism, theistic belief is integral. And typically polytheism is going to be a part of Hinduism. Buddhism, well, it's founded by Buddha, whereas Hinduism doesn't have a single founder. Within Buddhism, Buddha and his writings, or at least those ascribed to him, even if they're written centuries later, are seen as the supreme authority. Whereas Hinduism, well, there is no supreme authority. There's no head Brahmin minister who controls what is, uh, what is an authoritative text, nor is there any single text other than the Vedas, which are seen as uh, absolutely crucial. Buddhism partly grew up out of the Buddha's rejection of the caste system. This is a fascinating issue that we can't go into in great detail, 
But I'll just note that in, in Buddha's way of thinking, everyone can achieve enlightenment, and it's not necessary to have the, um, the multiple incarnations or reincarnation move you through the caste system. Whereas the Hindu way, that really is um, a definite theme, namely that if you're in a lower caste or if you're a lower creature, it's because of some fault of your past, and you have to move through the higher castes until you achieve greater perfection. Uh, so within within Buddhism, non-Brahmins, right? So even non-Indians uh, can be the heads of certain sects. And so the Dalai Lama is the head of Tibetan Buddhism. Whereas within Hinduism, you definitely have a priestly caste and that's ineradicable. What they do have in common though, perhaps uh, is more and better known. They both believe in karma, reincarnation in a certain respect, there can be multiple worlds, in fact, kind of in, in infinity of worlds. Uh, interestingly enough, they both believe in different versions of heaven and hell. And um, it's not just different parts of heaven and hell, like, you know, in Dante's Divine Comedy, where they're like different places for the greedy and different places for uh, liars and so on. Um, it's actually like there's a different kind of heaven altogether within both Buddhism and Hinduism. Meditation is a crucial way of perfection. And interestingly enough, the practice of yoga is accepted by both. So, so what we're starting to notice then is that Buddhism is more than Stoicism in a number of different ways in its cultural layout, in its influence, in its belief in multiple gods, its cosmology and ontology. And yet Buddhism is definitely distinct from Hinduism, although they do have quite a bit of overlap. So Buddhism, I don't think, can be reduced to mere philosophy. Neither, though, is Buddhism a full-blown religion, at least not in all of its manifestations. Some Buddhism is closer to um, a really developed philosophy or way of life, but not merely intellectual. It is more about a practice. So with that, then, we can turn to some of the major systems and developments of Buddhism. And similar to Hinduism, there are so many, and they are so diverse that we're, we're merely scratching the surface. And in fact, I'm sure some of my Buddhist friends will ask me, well, why did you focus on these four and not on another one? And the answer is, well, we have to limit ourselves somehow. You know, Father Ezra has been talking 45 minutes and um, <laughs> we don't have infinite amounts of time. So, um, so I'll just name these four. And um, in fact, I'm going to name a fifth uh, because there's we don't want to leave that one out. Um, but OK, so Theravada Buddhism. Um, Originally, there were 18 so-called schools of ancient Buddhism, and the Theravada is uh, of particular interest because, if you recall, um, I noted how Buddhism moved from India, and then quickly it went to um, East Asia. And so Theravada really spread and was uh, the main religion, we might say, in Sri Lanka for hundreds of years. And uh, the kings and the nobles, they built temples and monasteries, and they saw themselves as protectors of Buddhism. And it was eventually within Sri Lanka that this uh, Pali language became canonized. In other words, it became like the language for the Buddhist texts. And that is where the Pali canon, which is the primary source of many Buddhist uh, teachings, have been developed. So the Theravada although now it's not the primary or largest branch within the Buddhist uh, tradition, 
nevertheless is one of the earliest and one of the most influential. Just a couple of things in which um, we can note about the Theravada branch. Um, and again, there are multiple sub-branches and Theravada itself comes from its, its own lineage, which we can't discuss in any detail whatsoever. But we'll just say that Theravada Buddhism in its um, focus has two types of meditation. And one of them is called insight meditation. And it's quite close to transcendental meditation. So although transcendental meditation is often associated more with um, the yogis, such as you know the um, the the, Maha, the uh, Maharaji that that the um, Beatles went and visited, nevertheless, it actually has quite in common with Theravada understanding of meditation. And so some of these meditation movements are actually quite connected with certain Hindu or yoga movements. The Theravada Buddhism because it's fundamentally devoted to meditating and sitting quietly while thinking about these deeper things is more associated with the monks who have developed their, um, their practices. And so we can go to the next slide here. Look at that temple and notice just it's, it's great beauty. And, um, and so this would be a temple, which is also a monastery. Some monks would live here. And in fact, this is one of many large Buddhist temples throughout the world. And I just wanted to use this one just as, as, as an example so people could notice um, you know, what, this, what this looks like. Um, the, uh, the second branch of our large area of Buddhism is called Mahayana Buddhism. And, um, and this means the great vehicle. So according to the Mahayana branch, um, the Theravada is the lesser vehicle. So the Mahayana became the prominent one. And even now, more than 50% of Buddhists belong to it. So that means that most of the Buddhists, say in China and Japan, would um, trace themselves, at least in, by way of lineage, back to the Mahayana idea. Um, some texts that the Mahayana branches accept that Theravada doesn't are some famous things like the Lotus Sutra, the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra. Hey, you, can, you can find these books, they're pretty widely available. Um, now, within Mahayana Buddhism, it's really interesting because it actually seems to reappropriate some of the polytheism that um, early Buddhism seemed to reject. So Mahayana Buddhism says that there's this humongous universe with multiple kinds of Buddhas, and they start to see Buddha as a kind of a god, a spiritual king or protector over all creatures. Sometimes they'll light candles to um, statues of the Buddha as if, as if he's divine. Um, within Mahayana Buddhism, they'll talk more about, instead of just the intellectual meditation, talk about compassion or loving kindness. Um, interestingly enough, there's, um, can we go to the next slide? So, so this, this gives us some idea of uh, Buddhist monks and meditation facing the statue of the Buddha. And that saffron color is, um, as I think we all know, that we, um, it's, it's, it's the sign of their, of their uh, religious order, as it were. They're monks. They even use the word ordination. That's not entirely correct. Um, ordination is a word taken from Catholicism, 
And of course, that goes back to the Jewish idea of anointing somebody. But um, but e- even even Mahayana Buddhists can be ordained men can be ordained. Sometimes they say for a short period of time, sometimes for their entire life. So it's, it's a bit complex. It works slightly differently than the way Catholics understand ordination as a once and for all thing. Um, one branch of um, Mahayana Buddhism is called um, pure land Buddhism, meaning that they, they talk about the next world as a pure land. We might even think of it as somewhat like heaven. And um, within one Japanese branch of this pure land school, they even say that you can't get there by your own power, that you have to do that by what's translated as grace, but it's the grace of the Buddha. So we can see that like, there's this notion that you know, reaching these higher states is, is impossible simply by your own powers, which is what other Buddhists would totally reject. Um, another, another branch of Buddhism is Tibetan Buddhism. I think we're all familiar with that, at least insofar as you know, there's the, the head of it, the Dalai Lama. And, um, and so because of the Dalai Lama's influence, he was also seen as the head of the Tibetan state. So he had kind of a political role as well, which is one of the reasons why uh, Chinese troops invaded Tibet in 1950. And in 1959, the Dalai Lama fled. And then during the communist occupation of Tibet, it led to, they say, up to a million deaths and destruction over 6,000 monasteries. And so this is where you know, we often see, at least in California, where I grew up, um, little uh, uh, bumper stickers, you know, free Tibet. So the idea was that Tibet should go back to being its own um, theocratic religious state. The, the important thing to note just about Tibetan Buddhism um, is that it's, it's a mixture of Indian and Chinese Buddhism. And, um, and actually, they have some shamanic influences. So the idea that like some of their monks can be possessed by a spirit and they can speak a kind of prophetic word. So that's, that's something that's more unique to it. Um, one more branch of Buddhism, if we can go to the next slide, uh, is Japanese Zen Buddhism. And here's one of the most famous temples in Japan, um, quite lovely. And, um, and the next slide just gives us an, uh, a view of the iconoclastic way of thinking about um, meditation within the Zen Buddhist view. Uh, most famously, the samurais practiced forms of Zen Buddhism, and they said that this helped them to be calm in the midst of battle. And so when practicing Zazen or sitting meditation, they, they said that they were then able to control their emotions, create harmony with the universe, and thus give them a greater internal strength. And so this is where um, Buddhism within the Japanese world has given rise to painting, calligraphy, poetry, gardening, flower arrangement, the tea ceremony, all as ways of practicing Zen. So you can see that Buddhism within the Japanese world becomes a, a kind of a cultural movement, helping them to, as it were, like align some of the highest elements of their ancient culture. Uh, I also mentioned Western or American Buddhism. And um, so there's a temple in Indiana in the United States, um, Meditation Hall. And um, I just wanted to give you a view of um, Americans, you know, practicing something. It doesn't quite have the charm of the uh, 
uh, Zen Buddhist monk. But um, but we can see that Americans are are quite fascinated with Buddhism. Um, in the 1960s, there was this famous Englishman, Alan Watts, and he went to very close to my hometown, San Francisco, and became uh, popular among the hippies, giving talks about Buddhism and other Eastern uh, philosophies and religions. So um, what we'll just notice, there's another fellow um, just recently passed away, actually, um, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. And, um, and he, he, uh, he actually is considered to be one of the so-called fathers of Western mindfulness. So, um, so he also helped to spread this. And he was a, a Buddhist monk um, who was exiled for some time, but eventually was able to go back to Vietnam. Okay, so very briefly, how do Catholics respond to Buddhist claims? What is the universe? The universe is not an infinite chain of being that's illusory. The infinite universe is the creator's creation. In other words, there is a fundamental distinction in Jewish and Christian thought between God, who is creator, who is absolute unchanging being, God, who is ultimate reality, perfection of all goodness, and creation. Creation is finite, changing. We are dependent upon God in every moment. And yet we still have an infinite soul uh, insofar as we can know truth and we can know God who himself is infinite. So we can be attached to God, but we ourselves are finite and dependent. Why do we suffer? Suffering is not because we're finite. Actually, suffering is because of sin. All things were made good by the good and loving God. And to be detached from God is the source of suffering because that's what sin is. We are detached from God in our will. We are no longer able and capable of receiving the goodness that he desires for us. So suffering is not, not because we're creatures. In fact, the only way to not suffer is to accept your createdness, your finitude, your dependence upon God, which is then going to be a loving relationship with your, your father with his son, Jesus Christ, you can be adopted into him and with the Holy Spirit who fills your soul with God's goodness. So reincarnation is impossible. Uh, St. John Henry Newman had a beautiful sermon in which he said, if you come to recognize that you have a soul, a spiritual principle, and you come to contemplate the existence of your soul in relation to God, then you will recognize the beginnings of Catholic doctrine. So recognition of your soul shows that you are not simply um, a phenomenon that's going to pass away. You will not be reincarnate in any way whatsoever. You have one life to live, and it's now, and it will last forever, whether in heaven or in hell. So how do we overcome ultimate, ultimate suffering? Well, the grace of Christ. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith gave a warning about the writings of a fellow named uh, Father Anthony DeMello, a Jesuit from India. And um, Father Anthony DeMello, like many people, um, was sort of struck by the, the interest of Eastern thought, especially Buddhism. And in his early writings, he, he was more or less faithful to church teaching while kind of trying to explicate uh, Buddhist thought. But as time went on, he started to distance himself from the essential contents of the Christian faith. 
And instead of seeing Christ as the one incarnate God, the one way to be saved, instead he started uh, portraying Christ as if he's just one master among many others. And no longer did he see Christ as the Son of God and the Savior who brings us free from sin to unite us with the triune God, but instead he was just the one who was fully awake. And so we can see then that recognizing that the grace of Christ is the way to be saved is absolutely crucial and totally contrary to the Buddhist idea. How do we gain grace? Well, uh, what I put here is prayer. And what I mean is that grace is freely given. We can't earn it. Nevertheless, God wants to give it to us through our prayers. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith has uh, a famous letter called The Letter on Some Aspects of Christian Meditation. And it warns us not to be seduced by certain Eastern methods of meditation that purport to raise the person above finite reality. The, this letter uh, by the CDF says, at most, it can help to calm a person with a technique to um, simply give them a place where then grace can enter, but we should never think that one is the other. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a healthy warning, and it says that we should not associate our emotions or a sense of calm with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says that people who do so are superficial and don't recognize that the Holy Spirit often hides from us and doesn't manifest himself in our emotions. Well, I think a way to conclude uh, this is by reflecting on something that G.K. Chesterton noticed. And he says, if you look at the face of the statues of the Buddha, you'll notice something very interesting. Notice that the eyes are almost closed. The face is serene. And this is because within the Buddhist idea, the eyes are heavy, sealed with sleep, closed to the physical world because they are, it's, it's an illusion. And so the interior move is the move of the Buddhist, not to recognize that this world has a permanence or a lasting meaning, but to try to transcend that meaning as if it doesn't matter. Where in contrast, when we look into the face of Christ, his eyes are fully open. He's looking right at us. It is the person of the Son of God who wants to redeem us. His hands are raised in blessing. His other hand is holding the Gospels, which is the truth of his life. And then we can see that the Christian always has his eyes wide open. We are alive. And we should see the world as the good creation of the good God, one that we are to engage, not to worship it, but not to be distracted by it, not to be unduly attached to it, but to love it the way that God loves it so that we can be united with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. Wow. What a powerful way to close such an interesting and insightful lecture. Father Ezra, thank you so much. So um, we will move into question and answer here. Father Ezra, you ready for some questions? Let's go. One question that has been coming in a lot, Father is, is it okay for a Catholic to tour, like go on, you know, like go on a vacation or whatever, and actually tour 
their places of worship, whether Hindu or Buddhist? Okay, yeah, great question. Um, and and I would I would first make a distinction between um, entering a a building as a worshiper versus to to say look at certain artwork or if there's something that isn't a temple but is nearby like the gift shop or something like that. So in many places in Asia, uh, they will ask you to 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 do something to show homage to like a statue or something like that. That's absolutely unacceptable. So, you know, as Catholics, we can never light a candle. We can't burn incense. We can't say certain words, uh, which would, you know, indicate like a belief in that system. So we can't do that. Um, I, I've been told by some people that they were asked, like there was a group who wanted to go to a Hindu temple and they said they were supposed to take their shirts off uh, because it's a sign of respect. And um, it was a group of men. And, um, and, and there, you know, I, I, it's, it's supposed to be a sign of respect, but it seems to go a little too far. And now that's different from can you walk around or can you just look at it? Now, uh, when I was in India, I was with a Dominican brother, we're in our habits, and, um, and, and I wanted to see what did, what did an inside of a Hindu temple look like. And um, we walked in just a little bit, and my Dominican companion said, he says, I feel spiritual darkness. He says, I, it feels dark and heavy. And he says, I don't think we should be here. And, um, and like, you look at the statues, and it looks like demons torturing people. And so, you know, I agreed with him, and we left. And after that, we didn't go again. So, um, so I think that these places are, uh, have real spiritual influence Sometimes demons can attach themselves to people if you're in there. And I would just say, like, in general, um, Hindu temples should not be frequented. Now, a Buddhist temple, I think, is slightly different. Some of them have some gods and some don't. So generally speaking, to I don't think it's good to, like, walk in there and just sit down or anything like that. Can you go in there um, and, 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 you know, just, like, kind of peek your head in? I don't think that's a problem. But I would say never do anything that would suggest whatsoever that you agree with this or that you are somehow a participant. It'd be similar to going into a mosque. Can you go into a mosque? Well, they won't let you go in unless you take your shoes off, unless you bow down. And I would say, we can't do that. So um, so unless they can make an exception for you, no. Um, but again, like sometimes it's there is ambiguous things. So like the Taj Mahal is uh, it's the burial place of a former uh, Muslim who is a former ruler in that part of India. And you're supposed to take your shoes off there, but it's not because it's a temple. It's just out of respect. So I think that that's okay to do. You can take your shoes off to go into the Taj Mahal, but there's no like religious significance to doing so. Um, so it would be, you know, so that's, that's a slight difference. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, Father. Uh, Mara here on screen with us. Go ahead, take yourself off a of mute and ask your question. Father, it's true. The spirits attached to people. I grew up in Panama and we have the, Hindu Baha'i Faith Temple and the Buddhist temples, and not, not, not a good thing. How do you reconcile? Is it because of the different systems in, within Buddhism? Uh, you're talking about the right intention. How do you reconcile that with the Buddhist attitude towards Muslims in Burma? That's my first question. And the second question is, regarding Christianization of yoga, like 
uh, Pietra Fitness does. If you could deepen on that, because uh, you had to talk about that long time ago. So if you could clear those two things, because uh, it was hard for me when people talk about Buddhists and they don't see the aggressive side of the Buddhists sometimes. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I can't I can't justify Buddhist action um, or you know nationalist action. I mean, Hindus sometimes also portray themselves as peaceful people, and so so do Muslims. Sometimes Islam has called itself the religion of peace, uh, despite the history of killing many people. So so I I you know I I think that that question just it raises a lot of difficulties about whether people are being hypocritical, whether they're being faithful to their principles. How much are they acting out of a sense of um, territorialism versus their own religion? Th those are quite complex issues, and and certainly um, depending on where you are, right? If you're in a if you're in a Muslim majority country, the Muslims might treat the Hindus badly or the Buddhists badly. Whereas if you're in a Buddhist or Hindu <laughs> majority country, they might treat the Muslims badly. So um, unfortunately, this is uh, not unusual in Asia. And, and often um, people think that Buddhism means peace and there are like foundations about the, the Buddhist peace movement. G.K. Chesterton had a very funny saying. He said, um, he says, many Buddhists come to the West. You know, this is in the 1917s when he's writing this. He says, many Buddhists come to the West and say that, that Buddhism will bring peace and there will be no more world wars if everyone becomes Buddhist. He says, but it clearly hasn't uh, stopped wars in China. So... So I, I don't think that any any system is going to be like the 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 mode per se of world peace because sin continues to exist despite you know the followers of whatever system it is. Um, regarding yoga and Pietra Fitness, um, I, I think that's that's too complex and difficult to you know answer right now. All I would say is um, is as I said at the end of the last lecture is. When Christianity says that there's some truths that we can adopt from certain non-Christian philosophies or systems, that's different from an action. So uh, what we got from Aristotle was some understanding of logic, some understanding of metaphysics. What we got from Plato is some understanding of ethics, but we didn't adopt any Greek behaviors with respect to the gods. And we didn't say adopt those actions. And so I think that's where the question um, relies regarding yoga, because yoga is primarily a technique of action rather than a series of beliefs. And the question is, can we use some of those actions in a way that's not dangerous spiritually? And and the answer is is sometimes yes and sometimes no. So so that's that's it's quite a complex issue, but that's that's I think where we'll have to leave it. Um, Father, a lot of questions have been coming in um, asking for you to comment on Thomas Merton and um, and his sort of in interest. Is that a nice way of putting it in in Buddhist thought? Okay, yeah. So uh, so Thomas Merton, we know, uh, you know he converted to Catholicism. We we have his famous book, The Seven Story Mountain. And, and I'd like to think of Merton as a continuously moving trajectory. So uh, he becomes Catholic. He qu quickly becomes a Trappist monk. As a Trappist monk, he, he soon thereafter wanted to live in a hermitage. After being a hermit for a very short period of time, he started to travel and give talks. He started to write and publish his name. So he's always kind of 
he's he's kind of a restless spirit is I think a good way to think about Thomas Merton, um, and and his interest in uh, Buddhism in particular, but not only Buddhism. Like he has you know there's Zen and a few others. Um, I think represents his own spiritual exploration, and and for us as Catholics, of course, yes, we can learn from um, non-Catholic philosophies. However, it always has to be contextualized by grounding it within the faith. And I think that um, Merton started to go the direction of Father Anthony de Mello, namely to either try to approach a kind of a syncretism or to start to try to put those inconvenient dogmas that we believe by faith to the side and to try to emphasize those things that seem to be compatible with prayer and now you know, the kind of thing we would call mindfulness. So, so Merton, as far as I can tell, and I am not a Merton expert, um, I don't think that he ever denied the faith. I don't think there's anything in there, but there are some things that are a little ambiguous and just frankly not very spiritually helpful. Um, so some people see Merton as like a spiritual master, and I would say, once again, he's more of a restless spirit who had some insights that are valuable, but they certainly don't rise to the level of a doctor of the church or someone who is always trustworthy in everything they say. That's helpful. Okay. Um, Jose here on screen, go ahead and uh, take yourself off of mute. Hey, Father. Um, just I uh, survived Dominican House of Studies as well as the Angelicum years ago. So uh, it's good to see you. I just had a question. I teach world religions here outside of D.C. area to high school kids. And um, in my studies, I just wanted to see if you could clarify. Is it right to say that there's um, there's a monism in both Hinduism and Buddhism, right? It seems like because that's how I would imagine the karmic system kind of works. So it, would you say that they both ultimately identify, they're both pointing to the same, you know, conceptually to the same eternal monistic substance or would you say that buddhists and hindus would say the the one i know like anatta versus atta very different but would you say conceptually at the end of the day it's really just this one monistic energy and then i had a specific question about zen would you say that i've heard like the varayana tibetans say they pride themselves on like one lifetime you use all your energy you can get uh, to the other side, uh, past samsara, but, and then the Zen is like, would you say that they offer enlightenment in like in a flash, like in a, in, a, in like a, in a moment? And is that, is that the same level of enlightenment or is it kind of just like a teaser trailer of enlightenment with the Zen? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Great questions. And, um, and, and so in response to the first I think this is this is something that actually the philosopher Nagarjuna, you know, he he actually tries to answer some of these questions about monism because it seems to me that the Hindu the Hindu no notion is in a way more consistent, supposing that everything is part of the divine and we're just sort of like manifestations of the divine in concrete reality. Um, I, I think that that kind of has a logic to it, but but the Buddhist notion that everything ultimately is illusion and there's there's like nothing behind the veil you know that nirvana is to recognize the illusion um nagarjuna recognizes that's a problem because if you say well if nirvana is simply this sort of enlightenment as to the illusory nature and nature of all things then 
then that that seems to be the absence. And so Nagarjuna really wants to say there is no um, there's no annihilation and that this movement of the chain of things, that there is a being. I'm not convinced that he actually gets there, but that's that's where I would look if I were you, if you wanted to go more deeply into that. Regarding the the Zen question, I think you're absolutely right, is um, yes, they see it as instantaneous. This is one of the distinctions among the schools is whether enlightenment happens over a period of time or whether it happens at the at a single moment. So you're not sort of like becoming purified, but you either have enlightenment or you don't. And and different schools actually. So Dogen, you know, within Zen Buddhism, he seems to think that once you achieve this this level of enlightenment that that persists throughout your life and you you walk around and you're enlightened and that's and, and like once that moment happens however it takes place that enables you then to be fully detached from everything and so there are a lot of people who just there's never there um and then this would persist even after death supposing that there is a kind of a soul you know it's the Zen Buddhists are really interesting because, like I said, it, it seems to sort of come around back again to some theistic ideas of the needing of grace and the power of others. So I think we'll have to leave it there, though. It sounds like the the uh, the sort of theological speculation that happens about purgatory, Father, the way that you just described that. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, OK, Peter asks, um, Jesus said judge not lest you be judged, which um, I think is kind of like the Christian cover for relativism, right? Um, and he says there seems to be a connection. Does there seem to be a connection there to Buddhism? And if so, how? Oh, um, well, okay. So when Christ says judge not lest ye be judged, the, the way that Catholics have always understood that is according to people's interior intention, right? So we can judge their exterior actions. There's never been a question about saying, objectively speaking, this person has committed murder. Objectively speaking, this person committed theft or whatever. And we have like judicial ways to um, adjudicate those behaviors. And, and that's never been outside of Christianity. So, so, so like the verse judge not has nothing to do with objective observable behaviors. It, it has to do with their interior state when they were doing those. And we don't always know. Why do they commit the murder? You try to come up with a hypothesis, but ultimately only God knows the state of somebody's holiness. Now, precisely because only God knows the state of somebody's holiness, this is why we say in the creed, Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. So that ultimate judgment is left up to him, not to us. And so this, this idea then of um, non-judgmentalism as being like a principle of engaging the world Christians just would not have that as as our fundamental ethical presupposition, because, again, we're, we're adjudicating among behaviors. St. Paul lists a number of things that are contrary to good morals. In Revelation, it says neither fornicators nor magicians nor perverts will enter the kingdom of heaven. You're like, those are objective behaviors. Uh, so. Judge non-judgmentalism, the way understood by Buddhists, really has very little connection to our ethical standards, either on the objective level or like on the ultimate level, eschatologically, when Christ will come and judge people's hearts. Awesome. Okay, Maria here on the panel, go ahead and take yourself off of mute. So I've noticed that there seems to be, um, you know, lately a resurgence of stoicism. I mean, you see it being talked about on, you know, some of the major media outlets. 
And it seems to be, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's, you know, like a people are always looking right for a philosophy of, you know, life meaning. Uh, and I guess my question is, you know, what should Catholics, you know, say in response to the Stoics? Like what's, what should our stance be? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, great question. Um, so, so first I'll just note that in, um, the 1800s, there was the Romantic movement, and, and you know, there's some Romantic classical music, the the singing violins. Um, sometimes we'll see movies that are depicted in that state, you know, where there's the person who's in love and the star-crossed lovers who can't come together, and all of this. And and so the Romantic movement gave an emphasis to the emotions, supposing that if you follow your passion, then all of your behavior is justified. Oh, but he was in love; he couldn't help it. You know, this kind of thing. And, and, and I think that we can see the modern resurgence of Stoicism as a kind of response to that superficial emotionalism of, romantic, of the Romantic period. And, and Stoicism is right to say that you shouldn't allow your passions to govern all of your behavior, like it gets people into trouble. So, so, so I, I think there's something about Stoicism. This is why the Church Fathers you know, adopted it into some of their uh, ethical behaviors. Uh, however, the Catholic understanding is always holistic, is that we're body and soul. Our emotions do matter. We, um, we don't want to uh, suppress them to say that our emotions are insignificant or that um, they're, they're evil or wrong. No, we should admit our emotions, and yet we should integrate them with rational thinking. So, so maybe stoicism can help correct for some people who are like just they feel like their emotions are out of control. They don't know what to do. Um, but I would say stoicism is is an insufficient uh, way of life. All right, Thomas here on screen. Go ahead, ask your question. Thank you, Father. This is great. Um, my question is, I know in the in the Hinduism talk, there is it sounded like they had some form of kind of like our penance and like almost maybe restitution for the, or not restitution, like reparation for things that they've done in the past. Um, is there is there kind of a parallel thing to that in Buddhism as well, or is that because nothing exists and we don't exist, there's really no need for it. Mm. Well, no, B Buddhists do have an idea of, um, of increasing your karma or improving it. And, um, and that Vietnamese fellow that I, that I mentioned, um, he, uh, in particular, they have this, they have this more of a modern notion of Buddhism in action. And so, so this, this area of enacted Buddhism will often talk about caring for your neighbor, not just having like compassion for him, but also having a kind of, um, we, we, as Catholics, we might call it like social justice or charity element. So, um, so we actually see a number of Buddhists now engaging in these, in these behaviors. Uh, for instance, politically, they'll talk about you know, ecological awareness. They'll even talk about like economic justice, these sorts of things. And um, and so Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he popularized this notion of engaged Buddhism. And and for them, that's one that's one more way of improving your karmic standing with respect to the universe. Um, and, and, and then sometimes for some Buddhist notion, you actually do increase merit. But of course, the merit is simply to allow you to achieve nirvana, which is to recognize that all of this is, is a bit illusory. So you have to kind of go through the stages of behaving in the right way. But ultimately, it's it's to transcend that entirely. So again, I, I think there's miss, something missing from the logic there. But, but there is a way in which Buddhists do think that uh, helping your neighbor can 
improve your state with respect to the universe. Um, Sabrina here on screen, go ahead and ask your question. Okay, well, thank you, um, Father, for your explanation and wonderful talk, and especially your emphasis of what Catholics believe. And I think if we know what we really believe, and then we wouldn't have any confusion. What I was wondering is, you know, in China, there are a lot of temples, Buddhist temples are built by the government. So it's not just, you know, if you want to be a spiritual uh, place to, to go, that's fine. But a lot of the uh, temples that you go in, it's a money-making revenue for the government. And so if that's the case, you know, a lot of us, you know, with a curiosity of see what's inside. So when we go to those premises, you know, I wonder if that was okay because it was really a magnificent building of temples. And another thing is a lot of the uh, Buddhists would say they do a lot of the um, charity work, you know, meals and stuff, and uh, try to attract people to go to their um, place. And uh, they all say, oh, we are just doing the good work, you know, like everybody's, you know, all the other religion, it's the same too. So how, how would you, you know, in, under those kind of conditions, what would you say that can we participate in those functions? And uh, that's the two questions I have. Okay, great. Yeah. So, so I, I think that in the Chinese context, because it's very clearly secularized, uh, that to go into a temple um, out of curiosity would be okay. Again, it, it also depends on how the other people you're with will interpret that. We always want to avoid scandalizing people. And, and that's another thing entirely different from the potential of spiritual danger for ourselves is if people know that we're Christian or Catholic, we're going into the temple, they might not understand what that means. And so we just have to be careful that we don't give a bad witness to people or for people to think that we're sort of playing both sides um, as if you can be equally Buddhist and Christian, which is not possible. Um, the, the other side is uh, certainly there's some good actions that we can do uh, in conjunction with other religions and, and Christianity has, has recognized this. So feeding the poor, for instance. Now, we always have to see, like, where's the money going? Are they using this to try to attract people to their religion? And, I mean, you know, and frankly, sometimes, uh, I mean, there have even been Protestants who try to use, like, giving meals to the poor in traditionally Catholic countries as a way to try to draw them away from Catholicism. So, so we have to be, you know, prudent uh, regarding any kind of cooperation or benefiting from those kinds of um, uh, charity behaviors. You know, I know I know some Catholics in some countries that are you know pre predominantly non-Catholic. They actually don't like to take food, meals, or charity from these non-Catholic philosophies or religions because because they say I don't want to be compromised. I don't want to become dependent on the Buddhists for my food. So I think that's respectable. But of course, I mean, if you're starving, <laughs> sometimes all you can do is get the food they give you. So, yeah. And also for my understanding and also my participation with my Buddhist friends, um, I think Catholics, you know, anybody can be Catholic, embrace Catholicism and do the things that, you know, Christ asks us to do. And in the Buddhist um, structure, um, you might not see it. You know, when you go into a Buddhist organization, if you hadn't met 
their qualification. You couldn't wear the the, the customs that they wear. So p- different people wear different customs because how much they gave to the temple and stuff like that. So, I mean, a lot of times outside people, they don't know. But if you go inside, you know all the restrictions and all the regular rules. Well, Father, in the interest of time, we're going to close it there. Um, we had like a million questions come in here. So, Father Ezra, thank you once again for a fabulous series of lectures that you've given us here. Thank you, Annie. Thank you, everybody. And uh, why don't we just end with a little prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.